Well, good morning. Welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. And we are one church that meets in different locations. So this morning we have family meeting out at Stone Canyon, our Stone Canyon campus, as well as those who will be joining us later online. So if you would, we just wave to those who are joining us by camera. Okay, they can't see you. I just thought it'd be fun to have you do that. If you would, put your hands together and welcome them to our services here today. Well, we're still in our series called Blind Spots, and we will finish it up next week. But most of the sermons in this series so far have kind of been a conversation I've had about hidden obstacles that can threaten our spiritual lives, and they've been directed towards anyone. But today's sermon is going to be a little bit different because it's directed more towards the church. In fact, our church, First Church. So if you're new here, if you're a guest, that's okay. Because I think through the process of this sermon, you're going to learn a whole lot about who our church is. And I'm excited about what this message is going to bring. But as we get started, let me ask a question. All of our campuses, if you would raise your hand if you've ever been frustrated with technology before. Anybody ever been frustrated? Yeah, okay, just about everybody. That's what I thought. Well, I found this video not too long ago of this elderly couple who were trying to set up a webcam. And the reason why they were, they were trying to set it up is because they had family that lived far away, they wanted to connect with them. And so they're trying to set this camera up, but they didn't realize that it was recording them the entire time. And so their family got a hold of it, they put it online, it went viral. You may have seen it before, but if not, take a look at this video real fast. No, look at the monkey. Did I get, did it capture? Why did it, it didn't say, I put it on capture. That's a pretty good monkey. Mm -hmm. Okay, wait a minute. Hmm. I don't think you, I don't think oh, you here, can. Oh, here, now, do it again. What does it say here? Take a photo snapshot, okay. Hello, my darling, hello, my baby, hello, my cat, don't go. Let her to get up, let her go say hi. No, I can't say hi, 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 no, I can't say hi. Wrinkles up there and the grants in my head. I, I can do. I can do Mrs. Doubtfire. Can they? <laughs> oh, it's perfectly all right. Say, take a series of photos. I was doing. That's now. okay. And you can email these to selected media. But why can't? Why? Why want to take a picture? Take photo. Oh, no, no, dear. God, pardon me. I love that couple, I really do. Who wouldn't want them as grandparents, you know? Now, why did they go to all that trouble to try to set up a webcam? Obviously, it was something that they weren't used to or comfortable with. I mean, they didn't grow up with that type of technology, and it took some work. So why did they go to all the trouble to set up that webcam? Because they wanted to connect with their family. They love their family. And what I have discovered in life is this. It's amazing what love will drive us to do. I found that out firsthand when it came to my dad. My dad, when smartphones first came out, did not want one, hated the idea. He did not want a smartphone at all, and so he kept his flip phone forever until finally his work made him get an iPhone. And when he got it, he told us, do not text me, do not try to get me to use any of the apps, don't email me, expect me to respond right away on my phone. And he said, don't try to FaceTime me. When I talk to you on the phone, I don't want to look at you. Don't try to FaceTime me. And so he was just against using his smartphone for what it's made for until 
he had his first grandchild. And then when my son Alex was born, he wanted us to text him pictures all the time. And he wanted to FaceTime. He couldn't wait to answer a FaceTime call. And now that we live like 12 hours away and he has two grandchildren out here in Oklahoma, oh, he's all about it. And when we FaceTime my parents, he's the first one to answer. He's got a smile on his face. He's making funny faces at him and all that kind of stuff. What changed when it came to my dad? It's amazing what love will drive you to do. When I was working on my second master's degree, I would take intensive classes for a week at a time, two or three times a year, and so I would have to leave Allison for a week, and I hated doing that. I always hate any time I'm away from my wife. Uh, so I was away for one of those classes, and the class was supposed to finish up on Friday, so I was going to leave Friday afternoon, go home and see Allison, uh, but the professor ended up letting us go Thursday afternoon, so I knew I could make it home. Now, I already had a hotel room booked for that night, so I had to go talk to the hotel. They didn't want to let me out of it because it was too late to cancel, but finally, I talked them into letting me out of it but I didn't care if they weren't going to let me out of my reservation I wanted to get home to see Allison and so I left uh, Thursday afternoon went home to see her and it was a few hour drive and by the time I got there Allison was at a basketball practice because she and I we were coaching a little kids basketball team we had an upward basketball program at our church and so we were coaching it together and and so she was doing it by herself that night, knowing that I wouldn't be home. And so I thought, I'm not going to tell her I'm coming. I'm just going to surprise her. So I walked in the gym door, and when I did, she saw me, and her face lit up, and she took off running across the court to see me, and she gave me this huge hug, and she just said, I'm so happy to see you. And I was like, Allison, there's kids around. Calm down, you know, just chill for a second. But then she eventually stopped hugging me, and we went back to coaching our game, or coaching our practice. And one of the little boys on our team came up to me, and he said, Chad, why did Miss Allison act like that? I've never seen her act like that before. And I said, well, I've been gone for a little while, and tonight I came home. And he looked at me and he said, I think you need to come home more often. <laughs> now, why did I try to get out of my hotel reservation? And even if I didn't, I was going to make it home to see Allison. Why is it she kind of lost her mind for a second and ran across the court and gave me that huge hug? It's amazing what well, love will drive you to do. Probably the most well-known passage of scripture in all the Bible is John 3:16. You've heard it before, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If there's one verse in all the Bible that captures the vastness, the expanse, the enormity of God's love for us, it's John 3:16. This verse lets us know that in spite of our mistakes, in spite of our past, in spite of our problems, our hurts, our habits, our hang-ups, God has always loved us. In fact, there's never been a day in your life that you've gone without being loved. There's never been a day in your life that you've gone without being loved by our Heavenly Father. God could have given up on us. He could have left us on our own, but He didn't. He decided to give us what we didn't deserve. He decided to rescue us from the emptiness that we had brought on ourselves, from the destruction that sin had brought into our lives. Jesus died so we could be set free from the penalty of our sin. And God's great love meets our great need at the cross. And here's the thing, God didn't wait for us to call out to him. God didn't wait for us to run to him. God didn't wait for us to first love him. No, he came to us, giving us what we didn't deserve, giving us what we couldn't earn. And you know why he did? Because we matter more to him than anything else in the cosmos. You and me, we matter more to him than anything else that he created. 
Because God so loved us. He was willing to die for us. He was willing to die the death that we deserved. And I know that sounds crazy. God dying in our place. God showing us grace that we don't deserve. I know that sounds crazy. And the Bible even acknowledges this. In 1 Corinthians 1.18 it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who haven't received it yet. But to us, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The idea of God standing in our place, dying for our sins, it sounds crazy, it sounds foolish, it sounds absurd. But God did it for a reason. John 3.16 tells us, because God so loved us. It's amazing what love will drive us to do. But here's the thing. We're surrounded in a world, we live in a culture where we rub shoulders with people all the time who have never experienced the love that God has for them. They don't know that there's never been a day in their lives that they haven't been loved by their creator. And they don't realize that what they're missing, they're missing his life-changing love. That the answer to their brokenness, their emptiness, their loneliness, their guilt, their pain, it's the healing love of God. And so Jesus gave us who have already experienced his love, those who are already following him, he gave us this command in John 13, verse 34. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Jesus says, just as I have loved you, even though you didn't deserve it, even though you did nothing to earn it, just as I have loved you, you should go and love others. Even when they don't return your love, even when they don't even realize what they're missing, you should go out and love others. And he teaches that the quality and the quantity of our love for others will be the purest indicator to the watching world that we are who we say we are followers of his see that's why the church exists the church exists to change the world to transform lives with the powerful love of Jesus but unfortunately I'm afraid many churches have forgotten that they've lost sight of this on this very Sunday a year ago it was a special day for my family we stood on this stage for the very first time and I was introduced as your new lead minister. Now, I didn't preach that Sunday. I was just being introduced. I actually didn't start preaching full-time until January. But still, we stood on the stage for the very first time. It's hard for, hard for me to believe it's been a year already. That's crazy when I was first introduced. But I remember standing on this stage and being a little bit nervous but excited at the same time because I had no idea where God was going to take us. I had no idea what type of journey he was going to take us on. And so I wasn't sure where we were going to go. But after looking back on the past 10 months, I mean, that's how long I've been here full time, I'm just amazed at what God has done. God is doing some incredible things in the life of this church. His hand is definitely at work. And just when we look at the growth that we're experiencing through our attendances, through our giving, through our service, I mean, there's no doubt His hand is at work and that he is using us in powerful and great, awesome ways. But even with all that he is doing right now, someone asked me the other day, they said, Chad, after you've been at First Church for a while, what do you hope is your greatest accomplishment? 
And that was kind of an odd question. I didn't exactly know how to answer that. But I just had a conversation with a friend of mine about the life of John the Baptist. And so in that moment, I quoted John the Baptist when he says in John 3, verse 30, he must become greater, Jesus must become greater, I must become less. And so I turned to the person who asked me that question. I said, I hope that the longer that I'm at First Church, that Jesus becomes greater and I become less. And that's not false humility. That's not just a cliche line that I'm giving you. I don't want to be known as a church that takes on the personality of its preacher, of its leaders, of its people. I don't want to be part of a church that simply carries out the agendas and the preferences of its people. I want to be part of a church that increasingly looks more and more like Jesus. That's what the church is supposed to be all about. I have with me today an empty picture frame. And I've brought this picture frame up on stage with me for a reason. Because a lot of people, when they come to church, they come to church with pictures of the church in their mind of what it should look like. They come with preconceived ideas of what the church should be and what it should do. And some of these pictures that they bring with them, they've painted for themselves. Other people come to church with pictures of the church that others have painted for them. But whatever the case may be, in any given church, there are probably dozens if not hundreds of different pictures that people bring with them of what they think the church should be. And so what we've been challenging you guys to do, for all of us to do as a church, is to get rid of the pictures that we have of the church right now. To put them aside, to take them out of the frame that's reserved for the church and put in a blank canvas and together... As a family, paint a picture of the church together to look like one person. And that one person is Jesus. Because that's what the church is supposed to look like. Every time somebody looks at our church, they shouldn't see us, but they should see Him. Together, let's put aside all of the other ideas that people may have of what the church should be. Let's set those paintings aside. And together, let's paint a picture of the church to look like our Lord, to look like Jesus. And with that in mind, that's why we launched a new mission statement this past spring. And you guys know what our mission statement is. It's plastered all over our building. We say it over and over again. So if you would say it with me. Our mission statement is, love Jesus, love like Jesus. And the reason why we launched this new mission statement is because we want to get back to what is most important. You see, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, the greatest commandments are to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That all of God's law hangs on those two commands. And so what Jesus is basically saying, it doesn't matter what else you do. If you're not doing those two things, then you're missing what's most important. And so we wanted to make sure as a church that we got back to the basics, that our foundation was right, that together we are doing what's most important to God. And so we came up with this mission statement that says we want to be a church that first and foremost loves Jesus with everything we have and loves like him in this world. And the last part of that mission statement, love like Jesus, is so important because we believe that First Church has been placed here at this point in history, at this point in time, to unleash a revolution of God's love on the 918 and beyond. Because when you look at the communities and the neighborhoods that we live in, people need the love of God now more than ever. 
And when you turn on the news and you see what's going on in God's world, people need the love of Jesus more than ever. In Galatians 5 verse 6, Paul says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Did you catch that? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. In other words, it doesn't matter what traditions you hold. It doesn't matter what, how much biblical knowledge you have. If you are not expressing your faith through love, it's not real faith. The only thing that matters, the only thing that counts is faith that is expressed in love. And that's what loving like Jesus is all about. We want to express the faith that we hold in love every single day. We want to unleash a revolution of God's love on the people around us. And we believe that that's not only what Jesus wants us to do, but that's the example he left for us. Because when you study the life of Jesus through the Gospels, you'll notice a trend. Jesus had 10 encounters, 10 encounters recorded in the Gospels with people inside the temple or in a synagogue. 10 different encounters where he taught people, healed people, helped people in the temple or in the synagogue. 10 different encounters. But as you read through the Gospels, you will also notice that Jesus had 120 encounters with people in other places outside of religious contexts. Now, it's not to say that meeting together in religious context is, isn't important. It is. Jesus obviously went to those places, and he helped people, and he taught people there. But the majority of Jesus' ministry was done outside of those contexts. Jesus met people in their homes, in their businesses, on the streets. He met them on mountainsides and on the shores of lakes. He met them wherever they were. And in so doing, he helped hurting people, broken people, and lonely people. He restored people who were blind, people who were sick, people who suffered from things like leprosy. He brought value to the lives of prostitutes, rebels, and tax collectors. He spent time with the poor, the outcasts, the rejected. And if we're going to paint a picture of the church that looks like Jesus, we've got to do that. We've got to be a people who don't just sit around in one place and hope that others come to us. We've got to look like him. And that means we've got to go out and reach those who are far from God. And that's exactly what Jesus tells us to do. In Luke 14, verse 23, he says, Go out. There it is. Go out. Don't stay in one spot. Go out into the country and lanes. And behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that my house will be full. It's not that meeting together as God's people isn't important. What we do here on Sundays and different times throughout the week, it is extremely important. This is the launching pad for everything else we do. It's extremely important. But our ministry should not be limited to just the times that we come together. We need to be a people who go out and find those who are far from God and bring them into God's family. I heard someone say the other day, there are two types of churches in our culture. There's the come and see church and the go and be church. And the come and see church, that's the church that's all about just getting people to come to services. That's their ultimate goal. 
And so they're all about just getting people to their building. And they hire paid staff to do the bulk of the ministry, evangelizing service and so forth. And worship is primarily a Sunday thing or whenever they meet together. But then there's another type of church in our culture today known as the Go and Be Church. And Go and Be Churches are all about empowering the people while they're here to go out and serve, to go out and evangelize, to go in and reach those who are far from God so that everyone who's part of a Go and Be Church sees themselves as missionaries to those who need to know our Heavenly Father. Go and Be Churches see worship not just as a Sunday thing, but as a 24-7 thing. Now, which of those types of churches do you think best describes Jesus? Obviously, the Go and Be Church. And yet, when you look at recent studies on the church in America today, only one out of five, only one out of five churches in our country could fit into the category of being a Go and Be Church. The large majority of churches are just waiting for people to come to them. And they hope that if they put on a good enough show or have a good enough program, then people will come to them. Maybe that's why over half of all churches in America last year did not add one single convert. Maybe that's why over 80% of churches in the U.S. that are 50 years old or older are either declining or their attendance has plateaued. Maybe that's why during the past 10 years, U.S. church membership has dropped by 9% while the population in the United States has grown by 11%. Effective churches in our culture, growing churches in our culture are those who have a white-hot sense of mission. You know why? Because they know what's at stake and they know what matters most. When my family first moved to Oklahoma this past January, we were confronted with a health issue. My son Alex had a little health problem and ended up having to have surgery. It was unexpected. We didn't see it coming. And he ended up coming through it fine. It was no big deal in the end. But still, it was scary. Now, the doctor said it was minor surgery. As parents, we didn't hear the word minor. You know, we just heard surgery. And you parents who've been in that situation, you know what I'm talking about. We were worried about him. And like I said, everything ended up fine. But still, we prayed a lot about it. And we wanted to make sure that he got the best care and before the surgery took place, I was talking to one of my family members on the phone, and this family member said to me, he said, well, Chad, how much is all this going to cost you? And I have to be honest with you, I hadn't even thought about cost. Like, that hadn't even entered my mind. You know why? Because it didn't matter how much it cost. It didn't matter. I wanted my son to get the best care he could get. I wanted him to be healthy and well. So it didn't matter if we had the money or not. We would have found a way to pay for it. We would have figured it out. But I was willing to do whatever it took to make sure that my son was well because he's what mattered, not the cost. And I believe that's the heart that God wants us to have for his children who we rub shoulders with every single day, who are hurting, who are broken, who are lonely who are far from him. Because when you love somebody, you'll do whatever it takes to help them. I believe that when we have the heart of our Father, we will rescue those he loves, no matter the cost. And I believe that was the mindset of the Apostle Paul. I think that's the reason why the early church impacted the world like it did during the first few centuries of the church's existence because they had this mindset. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22, Paul writes, To the weak I became weak, 
to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. See, over the past few weeks, like I mentioned before, we've been in this series called Blind Spots. And we've been looking at hidden, ignored, overlooked obstacles that threaten to derail our relationship with Jesus or disrupt the calling he's placed in our lives. But I'm convinced that one of the biggest blind spots that affects the ministry of the church, that keeps churches from carrying out the mission that Jesus has entrusted them with, is the blind spot of settling. And by settling, I'm talking about spiritual complacency, spiritual apathy, where we just settle for doing things the way they've always been done because that's what we're comfortable doing. And we should never settle for methods of ministry that are comfortable rather than doing whatever we can to most effectively reach those who are far from God. See, if we're gonna love like Jesus, that means we're gonna have to take some risk. That means we're gonna have to do some self-examination. That means we're gonna have to shake things up. We're gonna have to do some radical things at times in order to be all things to all people so that by all possible means we can win some. But that's what Paul did, that's what the early church did, and that's what we're called to do because that's what Jesus did for us. And the reason why Jesus went to extremes to show us love is because he was driven by this thing called compassion. You see, the antidote to settling is having compassion for people. Jesus was driven by this. In Matthew 9, verse 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. And this word compassion in Greek is the word splagnitsomai, and it means to hurt inside when you see the pain of another person. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. See, when Jesus saw people, he didn't look through them or past them or around them or over them. No, when Jesus saw people, he saw them for who they were. And he felt their pain. Their pain became his pain. Their hurt became his hurt. And that's why Jesus reached out and physically touched a leper when no one else would even come close to that man because he wanted that leper to know that his life wasn't defined by the condition of his skin. That's why Jesus ate with prostitutes because he wanted them to know that their value wasn't determined by their past. That's why Jesus hung out with outcasts because he wanted them to know that their identity wasn't defined by their social status. And I'm convinced that's why the early church changed the world. I mean, the early church was known in the book of Acts for turning the world upside down, for flipping the world on its head. And I think the reason why the early church was known for that is because they shared God's heart for people. They shared his compassion for the lost and the hurting And I think Paul definitely shares Jesus' compassion when he says what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 22, that he became all things to all people so that by all possible means he might win some. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm willing to do whatever it takes short of sin to save whoever I can. And when you look at Paul's words, it tells us what compassion does to us. See, when you have compassion like Jesus, that compassion will first of all compel you. In other words, it will drive you. Paul says, to the weak, I became weak. See, I want you to notice what Paul here is saying. He didn't look past people. He didn't ignore people and their pain and suffering. He noticed their weaknesses. He noticed their state of life. And he couldn't just ignore it. He was driven to do something about it. He was compelled by the state that people were in in order to help them. And let me just ask you, when is the last time that you lost sleep 
because you know someone who's far from Jesus? When's the last time that you lost sleep over that coworker or that neighbor or that friend or family member who's far from God? I mean, honestly, I didn't say this in first service, but I'll say it here. If you knew for certain that Jesus was coming back this evening, I bet you there'd be somebody that you would run out those doors to go see as soon as the service was done. You may not even wait till the end of the sermon. When's the last time you've lost sleep over somebody who's far from God? It's hard for me to go to a ball game, and I love sports. You guys know that. It's been a bad week if you're a UK fan. But it's hard for me to go to any sporting event, whether it's a college game or high school game, and not look at the crowd and wonder how many of these people don't know Jesus. I mean, every time I've been tempted to say, hey, if I can go steal a microphone and stand up and preach before all these people, and that wouldn't work. I know it wouldn't. They'd kick me out and nobody would listen to me anyway. They see me as a crazy person. I get that. But I've had that thought because I'm compelled to look for those who are far from God. Compassion also costs us. It's the next thing Paul lets us know. He says, I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. That becoming all things to all people, that was tough for Paul. Paul was raised a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was raised not to be around Gentile people and yet Paul writes in the same passage that when he was among Gentiles, he was one of them. He ate with them, he dressed like them, he hung out with them. And you know that had to be hard for Paul. That was stepping way outside of his comfort zone. But why did Paul do it? Because those Gentiles were worth the cost of his sacrifice. They were worth everything to God, so they were worth everything to him. And that's what compassion does. It doesn't just compel us to want to do something. It also ends up costing us something because we believe people are worth it. But then compassion also does something else. It changes us in the end. Notice that two different times in those two verses that we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul uses the word became. I became something else. You know why? Because the more time you spend with Jesus, the more he changes you, the more he transforms you. And you become someone who you never thought you would be. And I can say this morning, that's happened to me. Guys, I am saying things and teaching things right now that 10 years ago I wasn't saying and I wasn't teaching. You know why? Because the more time that I've spent with Jesus, the more he has transformed me, the more he has changed me. I am doing things right now that I would not have done 10 years ago because the longer that I, the more time I spend with Jesus, the more he changes me. And so the stuff that used to matter to me, even in the church, doesn't matter to me anymore because my focus is different. Guys, I don't care about the color of the carpet issues that I used to care about that so many churches fight about. I don't care what brand of coffee we brew out in our cafe. I don't care what you wear to church. I don't care if you're in jeans or shorts. I just want you to have clothes on. You know, I don't care one bit. I don't care if you come in a suit and tie. It doesn't matter to me. I don't care if they sing your favorite song, my favorite song on stage or not. I don't care. The only thing that matters to me are those who Jesus died for who have not experienced His love yet. That's what matters to me. And if we're a church that is going out and reaching those who are far from God, that's what matters to me. Because they're worth me stepping outside of my comfort zones. They're worth me giving up my preferences. They're worth whatever the cost. And I'm so glad that years ago somebody saw me. It's worth the cost. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus calls his first followers, disciples, to follow him. And he says to them in verse 19, Come, follow me. I will send you out. There's that sending out language again. It's all throughout Jesus' life. And I will send you out to fish 
for people. The old King James says, I'll make you fishers of men. But here's the thing, in order to be sent out to go fish for people, you have to leave something behind. And that's why in verse 20 of Matthew 4 it says that these early disciples, they dropped their nets and left everything behind to follow Jesus. Why did these fishermen leave their nets behind? Why did they drop everything that they knew? Because they knew that what Jesus was calling them to do was worth that cost. And the calling that Jesus has placed on this church it's worth making sacrifices for. It's worth stepping outside of our comfort zones. It's worth the cost. I love taking Alex fishing, and he has this little fishing pole. It's a Spider-Man fishing pole that he uses. We go to a pond behind our house, and he just loves it. He's a big Spider-Man fan. He was Spider-Man for Halloween. And so I told him the other day, I said, you know, buddy, it's getting to the point where you might need a bigger fishing pole. And he was like, no, 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 I don't want to. I love Spider-Man. I want my Spider-Man fishing pole. And he does pretty well with it. I mean, he catches little bitty fish with it, nothing big. And so we were out fishing, I don't know, about a week or two weeks ago, back when we still had warm weather. And we were out at this pond behind our house, and he caught a couple of little small fish. And then he hooked a big old fish. I mean, I don't know what kind it was. I've been heard that, I, I've been told that uh, there are some pretty big catfish in this pond. Never seen one, but I've been told that. I'm not sure what, ty- what type he caught, but it was a big one, and it was getting ready to pull him in. I mean, he was little, he's five years old, and he was having trouble handling it, and so a friend of mine was out there with us, so both of us, I mean, we're like grabbing onto him, grabbing onto the pole, trying to reel this thing in, and it's not working. This, his little fishing pole couldn't handle it, and sure enough, the line broke, it snapped, and the fish got away. And as soon as we got finished, I looked at Alex because it was kind of exciting, and I said, buddy, are you all right? He said, yeah, but I think it's time for me to get a bigger fishing pole. (laughs) Now, why did he change his mind? Because he wants to catch bigger fish. This fishing pole serves its purpose, and it's worked fine for him for years, but if he wants to do more, he's got to change his equipment. And I think that's a great illustration for the church. See, our mission doesn't change. We want to be fishers of men. We want to go out and catch people and bring them in so that they can know the love of Jesus. Our mission doesn't change, but the way we catch them might. We might have to upgrade our equipment. We might have to tweak some things. We might have to make some changes as our culture changes. The mission doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever, and the gospel does not change. But the way we present it, just might. Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 6, the only thing that counts is faith exp- expressing itself through love. And loving like Jesus may have to take on different forms depending on what the needs of our culture might be. And I'm so excited that that's part of our DNA here at First Church. I mean, that's who we want to be. When we launched that new mission statement last spring, Love Jesus, Love Light Jesus, I mean, you guys were excited about that. You were. I mean, the feedback that we got was just great. In fact, when I announced it from the stage, you guys applauded in your seats. I mean, you guys were on board with it, and we still are. We're a church that wants to have the heart of Jesus, that wants to paint a picture of our church that looks like him. And that is so exciting. But here's the thing. We've got to make sure that that phrase, Love Like Jesus, doesn't become cliche. That it's not just something we plaster on t-shirts and over our, on, on our walls, but it's actually what we're doing, that it's who we are. And so I'm excited to let you know that this Christmas, we're going to give you an opportunity to do just that. 
Now, if you follow our church on social media or you have our church app or you receive notifications or announcements uh, through email or whatever, you know that we said there's a big announcement coming today. And so here it is. This is what you guys have been waiting for. Some of you have been on the edge of your seat wondering what the announcement is. Here it is. This past summer, some of our staff members got together to plan out Christmas. Believe it or not, we plan for Christmas during the summer months because that's what it takes to get everything ready. And so we formed a Christmas planning team among our staff and we got together and met to discuss what we wanted to do for Christmas this year. And the first thing that we did was we looked at a calendar to see when Christmas fell because it changes every year. And Christmas this year falls on a Tuesday, which means for our purposes, Christmas Eve is on a Monday. And then there's, of course, what we call Christmas Sunday, the Sunday before Christmas. And so we started to talk about what we needed to do to make this Christmas special as we celebrate Jesus' birth. And so we started down the road of saying, okay, well, typically we have a Christmas Sunday service and we have a Christmas Eve service. And so we talked about having back-to-back services, one on Christmas Sunday and one on Christmas Eve, which falls on Monday, back-to-back services. But the more we talked about it, we all kind of came to the conclusion, is that the best way to use our resources? Is that the best we can do to fulfill our mission, this mission that we believe God wants us to carry out. And so after we talked about it a little bit more, the idea was brought up, what if we did things a little different this year? What if we had a huge blowout celebration of Jesus' birth on Christmas Sunday, the 23rd? And we had multiple services throughout the day. We have our typical services uh, on Sunday morning, you know, typical service times here at North Granada and out in Stone Canyon. But then in the evening, we add some additional service. And it's all the same service all day long, but it gives people a chance to come at different times, but also to invite friends. Maybe uh, our normal people can come to their normal service, but then come back and bring a friend with them at a later time if that friend is more comfortable coming maybe in the evening. I mean, a lot of unchurched people, they're not used to getting up early in the morning. And a lot of unchurched people, they have plans on Christmas Eve. So what if we just had a big blowout Christmas celebration on Christmas Sunday and we had all the elements that we would typically have on Christmas Eve. We have the candlelight part of our service. Uh, We have the special Christmas decorations and music. We have the hot chocolate out in the hallways. We have the photo booths and we even have the shortened abbreviated sermon. I mean, can anybody say amen? You guys love a short sermon, right? You know, we had that as well. What if we had all the elements of our typical Christmas Eve service but we did it all on Sunday and we had this big celebration of Jesus' birth. And then on Christmas Eve, that Monday, instead of having just another service where we said, okay, people, come to us, what if we went to them? What if on Christmas Eve, we got together right before lunch, and we had an impromptu service where we sang a couple Christmas songs and maybe had a Christmas devotion. But then after that, we packed meals, and we took them out to the needy in our community to the hungry, to the hurting, to the lost, to those who are down on their luck. Because here's the thing, Christmas Eve is a joyful occasion for a lot of people, but it's not for some. When you can't afford to fix a big Christmas meal, when you're not physically able to do so, when you're all alone in a nursing home or an assisted living place and your family's not going to come to the week later because they have their own Christmas plans, when you've just experienced great loss, maybe in your family, you may not feel like fixing a big Christmas meal. Christmas Eve can be a very lonely time for some people, even a depressing time. And what if on Christmas Eve, instead of us just having another service, 
We do all that on Christmas Sunday, but on Christmas Eve, we take Jesus to people. And we take meals to those in our community who need it. And we bring them a link to our Christmas services. They can watch online and maybe some of those individuals can hear the story of Jesus' birth for the very first time. And what if we, in their homes, prayed with them and showed them the love of Jesus? As a staff, we thought, how could Jesus not smile at that? And so we brought the idea to the rest of our staff. And then we brought the idea to our elders. And then we brought the idea to some of our key leaders here in the church. And at every turn, I was waiting for a red light, praying the entire time. And we never got it. Once we explained it, once we talked about it, everybody kept saying, this is what we need to do. And I was one that, at the end, was a little bit hesitant. Even though I was all on board at first, but then once it became a reality, I was like, oh boy, we're really shaking things up. And I thought, okay, should we do this? I was talking to an older lady in our church, a sweet older lady in our church who's been in this church for years, and she came up to me, and she grabbed me by the arms, and she said, Chad, why would anybody be mad about this? This is what it looks like to love like Jesus. Do it. And I thought, we have to. So that's what we're going to do this Christmas. We want you to invite the unchurched to our Christmas services on Christmas Sunday, but then we want you to come back on Christmas Eve, and we're going to do it at lunchtime, and we're going to go out and love like Jesus. And our staff believes this could be a game changer for our church. Take a look at this video. What picture comes to mind when you think of the church? At First Church, we're painting a picture of the church together to look like one person. And that one person is Jesus. We're here to love Jesus and love like Jesus. And this Christmas, we have an awesome opportunity to do just that. Since Christmas Eve falls on a Monday this year, instead of having back-to-back -back services on Christmas Sunday, December 23rd, and Christmas Eve on December 24th, we're going to have one big celebration of Jesus' birth on Christmas Sunday, the 23rd. We'll have multiple services at different times throughout the day. And we'll have all the elements of our typical Christmas Eve service just all on Sunday. But then Christmas Eve, Monday the 24th, we'll do something different. We're inviting our church family to meet at our North Garnett campus before lunch and to pack meals and take them to those in need. It's a way for us to show Jesus' love to those outside the church walls. Yeah, it's a little different than what we normally do on Christmas Eve, but we believe it's a powerful way for us to paint a picture of the church that looks like Jesus. And we believe it's what he would want us to do. Jesus wasn't born just to start a holiday. He came to change this world with his love. We believe First Church exists to unleash a revolution of God's love on the 918 and beyond. This Christmas, let's not just come to church. Let's be the church. Let's take Jesus to those who need him. First Church, let the revolution begin in us. I know it sounds a little crazy and it's different, but it's amazing what love will drive us to do. I know I'm over time and our early childhood people are probably mad at me right now, but let me end with this. How many of you have heard the name Herbert Pittman? Anybody heard that name before? 
Okay, I didn't think so. I hadn't either until just a few weeks ago. Herbert Pittman was the third officer on the Titanic, and he was also in charge of lifeboat number five when the Titanic went down. What's interesting is his lifeboat wasn't full, as many of the lifeboats were, because they were just getting in the lifeboats as a precaution. They really didn't think that the, that the Titanic would sink. But in the early morning hours when the Titanic did start to sink, and people were jumping into the freezing waters and screaming because they were dying, reality set in. And so Herbert Pittman, he began to turn his lifeboat around, because like I said, it was only about half full, to go rescue some of the people who were drowning in the freezing waters. And as he did, some of the people on his lifeboat began to yell at him and scream at him, telling him not to do it. They were afraid that people would try to knock the boat over, getting in. And one person said to him, why should we lose all our lives in a useless attempt to save others? That's a far cry from what Paul said in Acts 20, verse 24. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Herbert Pittman said that those cries of the people who were drowning because he didn't listen to the crowd, I mean, to, he, he didn't listen to the cries, but he listened to the people on his lifeboat, and he stayed where he was. He said the cries that he heard from the people drowning haunted him for the rest of his life. Guys, we don't want to be a church that's just focused on our lifeboats where, hey, we're saved and we're good and so we're happy in our lifeboat. We want to be a church that turns around and goes out and loves those who are far from God. Guys, I'm here for a reason and I hope you know you're here for a reason. We're here to change this little corner of the world called Northeast Oklahoma for the sake of Christ. I'm ready to do it. I hope you are. Who's with me? This Christmas, let's love Jesus and love like Jesus. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much for today, this time we've had to meet together as your family. And Father, we thank you for this open door you've given us, this opportunity that you've given us to go out and to express your love to those who need to experience it. Father, there will be more details coming for our church family of how all this is gonna work out. But Father, we know you're in this. And so I just pray that you continue to guide us and direct us. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know your love, hasn't experienced it yet, may they find it today. Father, empower us to love like you every single day of our lives. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.